few weeks ago, uh, I read one teaching of the Buddha that has tremendously far-reaching implications. Namely, that whatever one thinks and ponders upon frequently, that becomes the inclination of the mind. So we hear that on first reflection, it seems so obvious that the more we think about something, that becomes the way our mind inclines. Still in the busyness of our lives and in the seductiveness, the seduction of our personal life dramas, we often forget the transformative value of this teaching. We forget that we can actually train our minds, choose and develop what we think about. So it's precisely because thoughts condition our minds, both how we feel and how we act in the world, that right thought is the second step of the Noble Eightfold Path. And why right thought plays such a critical role in our whole spiritual unfolding, our spiritual journey. So tonight I'd like to speak about one aspect of right thought, which is the cultivation of goodwill, the cultivation of loving-kindness. And to see that this quality of metta, of loving-kindness, is not something that we only cultivate towards other people, but also it's the cultivation of a certain attitude in the mind that we have towards our own experience. This is summed up, I think, this whole practice of developing this quality of friendliness, both towards others and ourselves, is summed up very concisely in one line from this old anonymous samurai poem, where it says, I make my mind my friend. I love that line. I make my mind my friend. In some way, we could understand this as the whole of our meditation practice. Everything you're doing here is learning to make your mind your friend. The Buddha spoke of this in the Dhammapada. He said, neither mother nor father nor any other relative can do one as much good as one's own well-directed mind. Our mind can be our best friend. And sometimes we meet people in our lives who we feel really have made their minds their friend and who radiate that sense of goodwill and care and kindness towards everyone they meet. You know, and they might be well-known people like His Holiness the Dalai Lama or Mother Teresa or Martin Luther King Jr. or Nelson Mandela or Gandhi. Or, there are people who are really outstanding and are well-known who have this quality of metta, of goodwill towards, towards all beings. It may be different teachers that we've had you know, we feel this quality of metta, or just ordinary people in our lives who somehow embody this quality of friendliness.
for those of you who may have had the opportunity to meet the Dalai Lama, it's quite an amazing experience, even if it's just a brief encounter, because in those few minutes when you're meeting with him, you feel as if you're the most important person in the world. Why? Because his attention is so undivided and it's so filled with metta, with care. And he said, he said of his own practice, I try to treat everyone I meet as an old friend. That's a great practice in life. Can you imagine really keeping that in mind and treating everyone we meet as an old friend? Deepama, you know, our teacher from uh, India, so embodied this quality of metta, of loving kindness. It's as if she spent her life blessing. Wherever she, when she was coming to America, she was going on the plane. It might have been the first time she was on a plane, I don't know, but she was blessing the plane and blessing everybody on the plane. And you know, she'd meet somebody's pet dog, oh, be happy, be happy. It's like it was a continual outpouring of blessing, of goodwill. Somebody, somebody described being hugged by Deepama, and this is in quotes, being hugged so thoroughly that all my six feet fit into a great vast empty heart with room for the whole of creation. You know, so that's somebody who just has so developed this, this quality. With all of these people, whether they're well-known, whether they're our teachers, whether they're just different people we know in our lives, this quality of metta, of loving-kindness, they don't extend it towards us because of who we are, because of our position or our wealth or our intelligence. Rather, the quality of metta, this quality of loving-kindness, is extended simply because we're fellow human beings. And so that's what's particular to the quality of loving-kindness. It's the generosity and the openness of heart that simply wishes well to all beings, to everyone. And although we derive (coughs) tremendous benefit ourselves from the practice of metta, this quality or this state of loving-kindness is not seeking self-benefit. It doesn't seek anything in return for the offering, for the gift of our friendliness, of our care. There's a wonderful poem by the Sufi master uh, Hafiz. The name of the poem is The Sun Never Says. Even after all this time, the sun never says to the earth, you owe me. Look what happens with a love like that. It lights the whole sky. So when I read that, I thought, what a wonderful expression of metta. It's not given with any sense, you owe me because of this. It's just this freely given, this freely given offering of goodwill 
and it lights the whole sky. It's precisely because there is no expectation that metta, this feeling, is not dependent on external conditions being a certain way. It's not dependent on people's behavior being a certain way or ourselves being a certain way. Because metta is not dependent on that. It's just that wish to all, may you be happy, may you be at peace. For this reason, the feeling of loving-kindness, the feeling of metta, doesn't easily turn into ill-will or disappointment you know, or jealousy, as love with desire or love with attachment very often does. And so in this way, this quality of metta, this quality of loving care, really becomes very stable, very firm. It's not shaken easily. What gives loving kindness its great expansive power is that in the end, when it's well-developed and well-cultivated, it doesn't make any distinction between beings. It's not a feeling that's limited just to those who are close to us. Now, we might feel close to one person or two people or 10 people or 20 people or 50 people, 100 people, but we certainly can't feel close to all beings in the world. It's outside of the capacity of that feeling, you know, of love with attachment, of love with desire. Could you imagine what it would be like to desire every being? It would be a hell realm. But metta has exactly this capacity. The feeling of loving kindness, the feeling of goodwill, the feeling of friendliness can be extended, it has the power, it has the capacity to embrace all beings. So that's quite remarkable. You know, when we, when we look at the various feelings and emotions and mind states that we have, to connect with one that's capable of embracing all, it shows just how unique and special this quality is. It's rare. And it's for this reason that metta, loving-kindness, is called one of the boundless states, or one of the immeasurables. So just as an example of how, through practice, we actually can extend this feeling to all. And perhaps you've had some similar experience as this when, if and when you were doing metta practice. But as you know, Generally, we start, and when we're doing it systematically, we start with ourselves, and then a benefactor, and then a friend. Then we start sending it to a neutral person. And the first time I did intensive metta practice in India, and Manindraji, my first teacher, said, okay, well, now do it towards a neutral person. Just the whole concept was a little odd to me. I didn't quite know, you know, well, who's, who's neutral? And he just said, well, somebody... You don't have feelings for one way or another. 
And I realized that in the place I was staying at the Burmese Vihara in Bhagaya, there was this old Indian gardener who I saw every day and who I really had no feelings about. And that itself shocked me when I realized that he was this being that I crossed paths with many times and there was just no feeling at all about him one way or another. So he became my neutral person. And I started doing metta all day, every day. You know, may you be happy, may you be well, may you be peaceful. All day, every day, visualizing him. It was amazing. Every time I saw him, it's like my heart just was filled with joy, my love object. And it was a tremendous lesson to me in the understanding that how we feel is up to us. He didn't change. He was just going about his business and probably didn't even know that I was sending him all this matter. How I felt and the cultivation of this feeling was not dependent on his being a particular way. It all had to do with the cultivation of that quality in my own heart, in my own mind. So this is a very important lesson. How we feel is up to us. It's not dependent on how the other person is. It's not dependent on the other person's behavior. One example of, of the universal applicability of this feeling uh, is just really a striking example for me. This happened quite a few years ago uh, with the Dalai Lama at some big conference. It was at a hotel in Arizona. You know, lots, lots of people, maybe a couple of thousand people. And, and then the conference was over and he was leaving the hotel and he asked the manager of the hotel to just gather all the staff of the hotel. And before he left, he greeted every single staff person, everybody who was working in the hotel. And just the thought of that happening, <laughs> Who would ever think of doing that? Not that the manager would probably respond to it if it weren't the Dalai Lama, but just even having that thought, you know, that everybody working in the hotel was absolutely equal to everybody who was at the conference and whatever important people were there. And it's just that sense of the universality, the universal capacity of this feeling of metta, of loving-kindness. So this insight and understanding of the nature, the qualities of metta, has tremendous implication also for our practice of vipassana. So it's not that it's just some isolated practice that we set over here and you know we do metta for a little while. The quality of metta can and needs to inform our mindfulness practice. And so a good reminder of that might be to simply ask yourself the question, can I treat every arising experience as an old friend? Not just everyone we meet externally. Can we treat everyone we meet internally as an old friend. 
It's really having metta for the limitless beings within us that arise moment to moment. And having that inner environment of loving-kindness. One practice of this, and it's kind of a, it's a blending of mindfulness and metta. It was, it was kind of like a guided meditation by Venerable Mahagosananda, who was, you know, a well-known Cambodian monk. He died some years ago, um, and he was a great peace activist and led these marches, you know, walking for peace in Cambodia after the Pol Pot regime. And so he was quite a remarkable person. And he radiated. He just radiated metta, loving kindness. And he had this one practice. It was basically a body scan, you know, which is something we might do in Vipassana. But the way he did it was, may my head be happy. May my neck be happy. <laughs> may my shoulders be happy. And he would go through the whole body like that. And it was so lovely. It just showed the possibility of relating to our own experience, the experience of our bodies. However, whatever the experience of it might be, pleasant or unpleasant, but in this field of metta, in this field of loving care. So you might do a few meta scans from time to time. There's a tremendous purity and sort of a deep and quiet happiness in moments of genuine metta, genuine loving-kindness, whether it's directed to another person or directed to our own inner experience. Because these moments of metta, these moments of loving-kindness, are never mixed with any harmful states of mind. A moment of metta, it's like a moment of pure gold. In that moment, there is a genuine purity in the mind because it's simply filled with the wish, may you, may I be happy, be at peace. So I want to read a little bit from uh, the Metta Sutta, you know, which is the Buddha's words, the Buddha's discourse on cultivating this state. This is how he said that we should practice and, and the wishes that we should cultivate. In gladness and in safety, may all beings be at ease. Whatever living beings there may be, whether they are weak or strong, omitting none, the seen and the unseen, those living near and those living far away, those born and to be born, May all beings be at ease. Let none deceive another or despise any being in any state. Let none through anger or ill will wish harm upon another. Even as a mother protects with her life her child, her only child, so with a boundless heart should one cherish all living beings, radiating kindness over the entire world 
spreading upwards to the skies and downward to the depths, outwards and unbounded, free from hatred and ill will. Whether standing or walking, seated or lying down, free from drowsiness, one should sustain this recollection. This is said to be the sublime abiding. So the Buddha was giving a lot of importance to the cultivation of this quality of the mind. These feelings of just basic goodwill, basic friendliness, it's not complicated. It's just the simplicity of wishing well for all beings. When we cultivate it, it makes our minds and hearts very smooth, very gentle, very pliable. And because of this, because of this easing of the heart, the easing of the mind, we find that through the cultivation of metta, we become much less reactive. We become much less judgmental, whether of others or of ourselves. We become much more patient and caring with difficulties and disturbances. Thich Nhat Hanh, who again is a great exemplar of metta, you know, of loving care, he talks about this quality a lot in working with difficulties that arise in our practice and in our lives. So this is what he said about working with anger. The Buddhist attitude is to take care of anger. We don't suppress it. We don't run away from it. We just breathe and hold our anger in our arms with utmost tenderness. The anger is no longer alone. It is with our mindfulness. If you keep breathing, mindfulness particles will infiltrate the anger. If you keep shining your compassion and understanding on it, your anger will soon crack and you will be able to look into its depths and see its roots. So again, it's a reminder that this quality of loving-kindness is not just about wishing well to others. It's about that attitude of mind that we bring to our own difficulties, to to our own disturbances of mind. Can we hold them in a field? of metta. And when we do, it becomes much easier to see into its depths, to see the roots. As we practice this and cultivate this, we're not so caught up in our immediate likes and dislikes. And when the mind is less reactive, and there's just more space in the mind, it gives more space for discerning wisdom. We can see more clearly because we're not so immediately reactive to what's arising. And in this space, we can discern more carefully what's truly skillful, what's not so skillful. In seeing this, we make wiser choices, which in turn leads to more happiness, which in turn leads to more metta which in turn leads to greater discernment, more skillful choices, more happiness, more metta. And so it's just this spiral upwards in our lives. 
And as we practice this, as we cultivate it, what we think of and ponder repeatedly becomes the inclination of our minds. As the metta grows stronger and steadier, we feel more tolerant of ourselves and others. We're a little less judgmental. And we start to live in this gravity field of goodwill and good humor. So we hold ourselves and we hold each other with a much lighter heart. And this lightness of heart, this sense of humor about ourselves, about others, is such a gift in our lives. And it was the essence of this was captured so well in a line of a poem by W.H. Auden, where he said, Love your crooked neighbor with all your crooked heart. So it's just acknowledging the humanity of us all. You know, and we hold it with greater ease, with greater lightness. So the power and the beauty of the Buddhist teachings is that it's not simply some quality or some state to admire in others. You know, but it's really to practice it and cultivate it in ourselves. Again from the Dalai Lama, if we were aware that we all contain love within us and that we could foster it and develop it, we would certainly give it far more attention than we do. And just think what the world would be like I was just having a vision of this, of what the world would be like if everybody were actually practicing loving kindness. You know, if people, all people, recognize that we have this capacity for love within us and that it can be cultivated and then actually cultivated, the world would be a very different place. So although it's easy to recognize the value and the benevolence of this quality of loving-kindness, it's not, it's not hard to understand its value for us. Still, there are many times in our lives when we might feel that it's lacking, that it's not present, when our hearts are not soft and our hearts are not open, when our minds are not pliable. So it might be helpful to look a little deeper and understand why this happens, why this is the case. There's a powerful force in the mind that comes masquerading as love, but which actually obstructs it and obscures it. And it's called the near enemy of metta. And it's the near enemy because it looks like On the surface, it looks like it might be loving-kindness, but it is, in fact, quite different. And this is the mind state of desire, or longing, or attachment, or clinging. Now, for most people, 
love and attachment just seem to be inextricably connected. And if you, you know, ask anybody, are you attached to the people you love? Of course, how, how could I not be? So it's really interesting to begin to look with a little more discernment about these two states. Because the confusion of the two, the confusion of love and desire, or love and attachment, has enormous implications for how we live. So think for a moment of when, of those times when you have felt most loving. You know, where where there's really that feeling of metta, of just wishing well for another being. When we pay attention to what that feeling is like, the energy of it, we feel that it's, we can feel it as a movement of generosity. It's an energy of giving. It's the simple wish, be happy, be peaceful. Now contrast that, and if you can conjure up those moments, maybe in some close relationship, where you felt the most attachment or the most desire. What is that like? When that energy is there, the energy of desire or attachment, it's a holding, it's a taking. It's just the opposite of giving. It's holding something for ourselves. You know, this, this quality of wanting. And it could be the wanting of pleasure. could be wanting fulfillment. could be wanting accept, acceptance. It could be wanting to be loved. But wanting to be loved is not love. It's wanting. And if we pay attention mindfully, to these different feelings, we will be able to see very clearly that they're two quite different things and really quite opposite. You know, loving kindness is an offering. It's a generosity of the heart. Attachment, longing, wanting is a taking, is a holding on. So if we pay attention to those different feelings, the difference between them will become very clear. The difference between love and desire. What's so interesting that sometimes even in the practice of loving-kindness, even when we're doing metta practice, its near enemy can sneak in. as we repeat the metaphrases, is it a simple expression of goodwill? You know, may you be happy, may you be peaceful. Or are we practicing the loving kindness with an eye out for what we're getting from the practice? And I saw this arise so often 
when I was doing intensive metta practice, I would be doing it, saying the phrases, and lots of times it was just that simple generosity. But very often I would notice, oh, am I getting more concentrated? Am I getting more loving? And just in that moment, forgetting that metta, forgetting that it was an extension of friendliness towards somebody else, that the real practice of metta is not about me. It's about a gift of goodwill. But it can easily be co-opted. You know? And so we just need to keep an eye out for that. Or we might be saying the metta phrases. You know, may you be happy, may you be peaceful. When the real underlying motivation is may you be free of all those annoying qualities that make me feel aversion. You know, may you be happy <laughs> and stop bothering me. <laughs> Again, forgetting that how we feel is up to us. Nobody makes us feel a certain way. So we need to, we really need to see how this is working in our own practice, in our own lives. I mean, it's not enough to reflect on this intellectually or conceptually. All of this is really an invitation to examine and to understand the quality of metta and understand its near enemy so that we're not confused by it. We can also look, as a way of understanding the difference, we can also look at the consequences of each of these states. You know, in our relationships, in our close relationships, where do fear and insecurity and possessiveness and projection, where do they come from? Do they come from metta or do they come from desire? Right. When we're wanting something, that's when there'll be the fear and the, the jealousy and the possessiveness. Which of these two feelings create in us a space, a feeling of peace, of happiness, of contentment? So it's not hard to say. We just need to make the effort to look. We need to examine our experience so we understand this for ourselves out of our own experience. And that's what becomes transformative. So as we learn to distinguish the feeling of basic goodwill, of metta, of care, distinguish that from desire or wanting, then we can make wiser choices and we can see which states of mind do we cultivate, do we develop, which states of mind can we let go of when they arise. What we frequently think about and ponder will become the inclination of the mind. So we need to choose wisely what it is that we're cultivating. But it doesn't mean, as you well know, that the first time we repeat some metaphrase, 
that all of our attachments and desires fall away. So it's not quite like that. But as we become more familiar with it, as we learn to recognize the feeling of metta, and the recognition of it, I feel, is a very important aspect of the practice. Whether, whether it's out of the formal practice of metta or just going on in our lives, it's very helpful when we become aware of that basic feeling of goodwill, of friendliness, to mark it, right? to recognize, oh, this is the feeling of metta. Because the more we can clearly recognize it, the more familiar we become with what the feeling is, the easier it is to access it, to come back to it. When we practice it over and over again, it becomes much more the way we are than something we do. One of the beautiful expression of this quality of metta, of loving kindness. It was written by the French essayist Montaigne. He was talking about just a very deep friendship he had, and one of the great friendships of his life. And this is what he wrote. In a truly loving relationship, which I have experienced, Rather than drawing the one I love to me, I give myself to him. Not merely do I prefer to do him good than to have him do good to me. I would even prefer that he did good to himself rather than to me. It is when he does good to himself that he does most good to me. If his absence is either pleasant or useful to him, then it delights me far more than his presence. That's quite a remarkable statement of metta. Where his concern, his wish, is for the happiness of the other being, the other person. I love this line. If his absence is either pleasant or useful to him, then it delights me far more than his presence. That would make for quite transformative relationships. I found that in understanding and practicing metta, that it's often easier to connect with the kindness aspect of loving kindness than with the love aspect. Because in English, love is a very grand word. You know, it is so complex in its meanings. And our understanding of what love is has been so conditioned in so many ways you know, conditioned by the movies and by advertising and by our own fantasies. And in the light of all this, it's not uncommon for people sometimes to feel inadequate in some way, you know, to feel that they are not loving enough 
or they don't have the capacity for love. Or maybe we think we have this idea that oh, love should be some great ecstatic feeling that carries away, carries us away, you know, on waves of bliss, and then get disappointed or discouraged when it's not quite how it is. For me, kindness is a much more humble word. It's much more down-to-earth. It's much more pragmatic. It's just that friendly and spontaneous responsiveness to other people and to situations around us. Kindness is just a basic and natural openness to the world around us. So how can we strengthen this aspect of metta, this aspect of kindness? Nyokshul Ken Rinpoche, who was one of the great Dzogchen masters of the last century, he wrote something and he taught it so simple. It would be amazing just to remember it and practice it. He said, I would like to pass on one little bit of advice I give to everyone. Relax. Just relax. Be nice to each other. As you go through life, simply be kind to people. Try to help them rather than hurt them. Try to get along with them rather than fall out with them. With that I will leave you and with all my best wishes. As you go through life, simply be kind to people. The Dalai Lama summed it up. He said, be kind whenever possible. It's always possible. (laughs) So this is a practice. You know, it's, it's something we have to remember and to recollect and to think about and ponder upon, so that this quality actually is cultivated and grows within us. So the immediate cause for loving-kindness to arise is seeing and focusing on the good qualities in people, whether other people or ourselves, because we're all a package of qualities. Some are desirable and some are undesirable, as one inevitably sees on a retreat. When we don't see the good in people, when we don't see the good in others, when we don't see or focus on the good in ourselves, and focus instead on the annoying, irritating qualities, then it's very easy for ill will and judgments and reactivity to arise. When we're, focus on, when we're focusing on the difficult aspects of people, it's easy for anger to arise and sometimes even hatred to arise. But if we make it a practice to focus on the good qualities of people, even when we see the whole person. So we're not in denial and we're not you know, being sentimental. We're seeing the whole person, but we're focusing on what's good. What's good in others, what's good in ourselves. 
then the feeling of loving-kindness, the feeling of metta, grows quite naturally. It's the natural outcome. It is the proximate cause for metta to arise, focusing on the good of beings. Now at first, this may take some practice, because it may not be our natural tendency. You know, for many people, the tendency is to see what's wrong, to see what we don't like. And so we need to retrain ourselves. We all have an inner remote, an inner remote control. You know, so when we see that we're on the judgment channel or the, the anger channel, we can just click the remote. Oh, let's go to the meta channel. You know, let me focus on what's good in this person. As we focus on the good in ourselves and in others, then we begin to naturally respond in more loving and generous ways. And out of this, and it is a practice, we, we need to consciously turn the mind in this direction of looking at the good in people. One of the great gifts that comes from this is that we begin to develop (coughs) the quality of gratitude in ourselves for the good that people have done for us. And the Buddha called gratitude one of the most rare and beautiful qualities of a human being. We so easily take for granted or forget the kindness, the various kindnesses that people have shown us, you know, the help that they have offered. When we feel gratitude, whether it's to particular people or gratitude to life, out of this feeling of gratitude, metta, metta flows spontaneously. It doesn't even need to be practiced at that moment because the metta is, a, is an expression of gratitude. Something you may have noticed, and I've seen this often on retreat, just in the silence and the stillness of a retreat, you know, how often people may come to mind that you haven't thought of in years. And maybe people from your childhood are just, you haven't thought about them at all, but then, you know, in the openness and stillness of the mind, we start remembering and recollecting them. And what I've noticed is that even with people that there may have been some difficulty or when they come up in the context of a retreat, in the context of this openness, because the mind is less defensive, because the heart is less contracted, begin to see that in that space of awareness, as we think of these different people, that the loving kindness, the metta, the friendliness, is an aspect of awareness itself. And we settle back in this space of openness, of attentiveness, of caring attentiveness, then whoever comes to mind is really held in that space of friendliness and loving-kindness. Someone once asked Deepa Ma, 
whether she should be practicing mindfulness or loving-kindness. Deepamaya answered, from my experience, there is no difference. For her, love and awareness were one. When you are fully loving, aren't you also mindful? And when you are fully mindful, is this not also the essence of love? At one point, I was at a Buddhist Christian conference at Gethsemane Abbey, which is where Thomas Merton uh, lived and practiced. And after the conference, uh, this was at a uh, Trappist, Trappist monastery, some of the organizers wanted to uh, create a book. It was like a Buddhist take on the rule of Saint Benedict. So they invited four, four Buddhist teachers uh, to meet with uh, Brother David Stendhal Rost, who's a well-known Benedictine monk. And I remember, so we had, we had various discussions about the rule of Saint Benedict. And at one point in the discussion, it just came to me that In the Buddhist way of understanding, emptiness and love are the same thing. You know, in Buddhism we talk a lot about emptiness. Well, what does that mean? Emptiness, emptiness of self, emptiness of I. So what is the quality that manifests when we are not self-centered, when we're not holding the self as the reference point for everything? In that emptiness of self, Love is the expression of that. Love is the manifestation of that. And it was just very uh, illuminating for me to see just how these two are really one and the same thing. When you are fully mindful, is this not also the essence of love? This doesn't mean, of course, that we never get angry or that we never get annoyed. These feelings are going to come. But rather, as the Dalai Lama said, sometimes I do get angry, but deep in my heart, I don't hold a grudge against anyone. And I think that's a very useful reminder, because we will have reactions from time to time and have annoyance and irritations, but it would be worth really looking deeply to see underneath all that, underneath those surface reactions, Are we harboring a grudge? Or can we see that underneath it, underneath the momentary reactiveness, we are really residing in a place of basic goodwill? So that would be very helpful uh, to look at in our own experience. Sometimes in doing metta practice, especially with people or in situations that are very difficult, or even people that perhaps have harmed us, if metta is really boundless, if it has that capacity, how do we encompass all beings in this field? 
Well, sometimes it's necessary to adjust the phrases. And this was brought home to me quite strikingly just a few months after 9-11 because I was teaching a retreat with some other colleagues and we were teaching metta. And when we got to all beings, we said something about, well, can we include everyone, even you know, those who, who were piloting the planes into the World Trade Center. And there were quite a few people from New York on this retreat. And the basic response was, no way. This, this was just after that. And there's, there's no way I can sit here and say, may you be happy. You know. So it really made me reflect. You know, so, okay, well, what's, you know, what's the possibility here? And I saw it took, it took a little while for me to, to really understand because the reaction was very understandable. But then I reflected, wouldn't it be possible to wish for every being, may you be free of hatred, may you be free of enmity, the very causes, those, those forces in the mind, the very causes you know, of those such harmful actions. Is there anybody we would exclude from the wish, may you be free of hatred? May you be free of enmity? I think not. I think it's quite easy to embrace all beings, no matter what they've done, in that wish. May you be free of these qualities that can cause harm, can cause so much harm. And so it was a reminder that the feeling of metta we have, to, we have to understand the appropriate phrases or the appropriate wish, but it really can embrace all. This willingness to train the heart, whether it's in metta or anything else, requires great patience. It's not, it's not just a sudden thing. And the Buddha called patience the highest devotion. So it's worth remembering, you know, this this essential quality of all practice that we really need patience. It's a slow and gradual development. But the practice, the recollection of metta, of loving kindness, of loving care, the basic, simple feeling of goodwill. It's just that wish for beings, may you be at peace. As we practice it, as we remind ourselves of it, you know, in all aspects of our lives, both here on retreat and outside of retreat, it gradually transforms the way we live. It transforms our relationships. It transforms our relationship to ourselves. I'd just like to close with some wonderful lines from the poet Rilke. Uh, he's part of his prose writings. And he's talking about the quality of love between beings. He said, once the realization is accepted that even between the closest people infinite distances exist, 
a marvelous living side by side can grow up for them if they succeed in loving the expanse between them, which gives them the possibility of always seeing each other as a whole and before an immense sky. And I think it's, it's just such beautiful languaging of this feeling. It's not, it's not emerging. It's a living side by side. Loving the expanse between, which gives the possibility of always seeing each other as a whole and before an immense sky. Just imagine being in that relationship with everyone we're with. So let's sit for a few minutes. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.